Hey, it's Todd coming to you from the Sports and Spirituality Library here in my apartment in Verona, Wisconsin. It's going to be a warm one today, so hope you all are going to keep cool, especially in January. <laughs> Anyways, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a Experience, Strength, and Hope book. It's uh, stories from the first three editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the thing is, is that First, I'm going to start off first with, it's called the 12 Concepts uh, Short Form. I've never even seen this before, so you know, I've never heard this mentioned at a meeting or anything like that. Uh, of course, I might, have, I might have forgot it already. But anyways, 12 Concepts, number one. This is off the short form, so it's going to be number one. Final Responsibility and Ultimate Authority for AA. World services should always reside in the collective conscience of our whole fellowship. Number two, General Service Conference of AA has become, for nearly every practical purpose, the active voice and the effective conscience of our whole society in its world affairs. To ensure effective leadership, we should endow each element of AA, the conference, the general service board, and its service corporations, staffs, and committees, and executives with a traditional right of decision. In all responsible levels, we ought to maintain a traditional right of participation, allowing a voting representation in reasonable proportion to the responsibility that each must discharge. Number five, throughout our structure, a traditional right of appeal ought to prevail so that minority opinion will be heard and personal grievances receive careful consideration. The conference recognizes that the chief initiative and active responsibility in most world service matters should be exercised by the trustee members of the conference acting as general service board. Seven, the charter and bylaws of the general service board are illegal instruments, empowering that the trustees to manage and conduct world service affairs. The conference charter is not legal document. It relies upon tradition and the AA purse for final effectiveness. The trustees are the principal planners and administrators of overall policy and finance. They have custodial oversight of separately incorporated and constantly active services, exercising this through their ability to elect all directors of these entries. Enti entities, I should say. Good service leadership at all levels is indispensable for our future functioning and safety. Primary world service leadership, once exercised by founders, must necessarily be assumed by the trustees. Ten. Number ten. Every service responsibility should be matched by an equal service authority with the scope of such authority well-defined. The 
tr the trustees, I believe I'm supposed to say, should always have the best possible committees. Corporate, service directors, executives, staffs, and consultants. Composition, qualifications, inductions, procedures, and rights and duties will always be matters of certain of serious concern. Twelve. The conference shall observe the spirit of AA tradition, taking care that it never becomes the seat of perilously, perilous, periodless wealth or power. That sufficient operating funds and reserve be its prudent financial principle. And take that it place none of its members in a position of unqualified authority over others that it reach all important decisions by discussion, vote, and whenever possible by substantial unanimity. Unanimity, there we go. That its actions never be personally punitive nor an incitement to public controversy that I never perform acts of government that, like the society it serves, it will always remain democratic in thought and action. All right. Got through that. No pain involved there. <laughs> so that's the thing is, is that, um, That's a, uh, that is something I never heard before. And I think they might even read that at the uh, GSR means and stuff like that. All right, well, I'm gonna read the story. Get my mouth in working order. Yeah, he thought he could drink like a gentleman. Well, we'll find out if he can or not. He thought he could drink like a gentleman. Well, you know what? But he discovered that there are some gentlemen who can't drink. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio in 1889, the last child of a family of eight children. My parents were hard-working people. My father was a railroad man and a Civil War veteran. I can remember that in my childhood, he was ill at ease with the children before because he attempted to assert an army discipline that had been ground into him during three and a half years of army service. The differences between my father and my sisters, who were school teachers, made an excellent environment for the type of child I was, that is, slick and cute enough to take advantage of any adult quarrel. In other words, I was always safe from the discipline of my father, and having developed along that line, I had considerable difficulty in school. Rules were made for others, but not for me. Of course, it was always my aim to have my own way without being caught. My mother was 89 years old when she died, and I was a full-blown alcoholic at the time of her death. She was a woman devoted to her family and loyal to her husband. 
The quarrels did not make a happy environment for her. I had four brothers and three sisters. As I look back, all the brothers developed personality problems. The sisters seemed to remain unaffected. I seemed to react by developing a streak of various varying meanness, which would cause me to do things to create excitement and to get attention. I very, very early sampled the effects of alcohol. In fact, on one occasion, I was picked up by the police and brought home. I was then about 16 years old. I didn't go to I didn't go to high school. I went to five grade schools, primarily because I was expelled for my conduct. But I eventually graduated from the eighth grade. That's funny. All the stuff, the troubles in school, they sound like. How many other ones I've read about in here that had trouble with school, and I had the same thing. Just kind of, kind of fit that. I was always interested in mechanics, and after having about 20 miscellaneous jobs lasting from one day to two weeks, I obtained a job as a toolmaker apprentice. Being intensely interested in the work, I changed my conduct sufficiently. To master the job, I finished my apprenticeship and was moved into drafting department. That was in Cleveland as a draftsman. I worked for several large companies and gained a variety of experience. Not far from where I lived, they built a new technical high school, and one of the teachers sold me on the idea that I needed a little mechanical drawing if I were going to be a good toolmaker. I proceeded to take up the drawing and advance rapidly in it, the school then obtained a job for me in the drafting department of another company. After I saw the drafting board about two years ago, I decided I wanted a technical education. I was then about 18. I did not have a high school education, so I went to night school to take the full high school course, which I finished in two years and nine months. I apparently was willing to subdue these personality disturbances and a tremendous drive to succeed. I had an objective. I could discipline myself, but along the way there would be festivities and occasions when I got drunk. Although during this period I was not addicted to any pattern of alcohol consumption, when I did drink, the dead drinking was pretty wild. I tell you what, this, uh, going to school and drinking, this is what I did, totally. I then entered case school and worked while I went to school and finished there. That was an engineering college. Following graduation, I was offered a pretty good job, which I took. In the fall of the graduating year, I became involved in some litigation over the ownership of inventions and patents. The experience sent me to the law school where I went at night and which I completed in less than three years, taking the highest state bar examinations and passing them. The law school experience was not inspired by a desire to follow patent law, which has been my profession since. I went to law school primarily to learn the law of contracts following my own experience with litigation. 
A year later, after I completed the course in contracts, I quit the law school. I undertook some engineering work for a patent law firm on behalf of clients who were in difficulties and who desired to keep their troubles from their own engineering department. This work consumed a period of about two-thirds of a, of a year and worked out successfully, so I, I decided to follow patent law and I went back to law school and doubled up on the courses because I was then approaching 30 years of age and I wanted to get through as quickly as possible. I was supporting myself through all this education by being a toolmaker and draftsman. I married when I was 28 years old and I started in law school after I was married. As a matter of fact, I had two children at the time I was admitted to the bar. I kept myself so busy that outside of some school and group parties, I didn't go overboard on drinking very much between the ages of 25 and 30. My life was very well crowded and I didn't seem to have need any stimulants to keep me going. By the time I had completed law school, I had picked up some experience to, in patent law. Well, I remained with a patent law firm, worked to in Washington, where they found that I was capable and imprisonment investigator. 1924, I had acquired enough clients of my own, so as the firm made me a junior partner. My drinking career began four years after I had moved up to into partnership and had joined certain clubs, societies, and so forth. And during this period we had prohibition, I was then about 37 or 38. Think about it. Went to school for back then was, and we have to remember all the uh, new inventions coming out back then. You know, you had TV, you had telephone, you had, um, you had a lot of people that didn't. I don't think even they knew what the hell that was back then. So. had advanced to the point where it could stand a lot of abuse and it got it. Whenever a situation arose that fast talk, once explained away, I simply withdrew. In other words, I fired the client before the client fired me. I was willful, full of will to do the things I wanted to do and to get things that I wanted to have. And so far as religion was concerned, I had a Catholic training in my youth. I went to both Catholic and public schools and I never left the church. But I was, not a, but I was a fringe member and the thought simply never occurred to me that through the exercise of what I had, I might find the answer to my problem. Simply because I won't admit that I had a problem. The successful demonstration I had made of my life problems in other respects, convinced me that someday I was going to be able to drink like a gentleman. 
was about 47 after indulging in all kinds of self-deception to control my drinking. I arrived at a period when I felt convinced that I had to have so much alcohol every day that the real problem was to control how much. After two or three years of, of effort along this line, I reached the point of actual despair that I ever would be able to drink only a harmful amount, harmless amount each day. And then my thinking became calculation as to how much longer I had to live, how long the acids would last. By that time, I had one boy in college, another a senior in high school, and a doctor about 12 years old. My efficiency as a professional man was probably reduced to 25% of what I should have been. I had two partners. They suffered from my conduct without saying anything. But the reason for this was that I shall, I still managed to hang on to a very substantial practice. They probably felt that it was useless. And surely I had enough intelligence to know what I was doing. They were wrong. They never raised the issue. In fact, as I look back, I have often thought that I've often thought that they probably concluded that they would put up with me for a longer couple of years, that I couldn't live much longer, that they wouldn't inherit whatever was left of the practice. That is not unusual. As far as my home, I was concerned, I did not see that. Though, of course, I can see now that it was anything but a happy situation for my wife. My children lost complete respect from me. In fact, it was only after three or four years of sobriety that any of them ever said anything to me to indicate that I had recouped even a little of their respect. I was 49 and a half years old when I was first approached about, about the Akron group. It was not known to me as a group, that, but I later just learned that my wife had known about it for nine months and had prayed constantly that I would stumble into Akron some way or another. She knew that at that time any suggestion she made about my drinking would only build up a barrier consideration for which I am ever grateful. Had anyone undertaken to explain to me what the AA movement was, what a real function was, I probably would have been set back several years and I doubt if I would have survived at all. So the story of my introduction to AA begins. With the activities of my wife. She had a hairdresser who used to tell her about a brother-in-law who had been quite a drinker. It was some doctor in Akron who had strengthened him, had straightened him out. My wife didn't tell me this, but one Sunday afternoon when Mary was trying to get Cow was on my mind. Clarence and his sister-in-law, the hairdresser, called at the house. I was introduced to them, and Clarence proceeded to put on his 12-step work. I was kind of shocked about anybody talking about themselves the way he did. And my impression was that the guy was a little touched. However, on a couple of other occasions, Clarence seemed to bob up at the last saloon that I would stop at on the way home every day. 
I resented it, of course, and I offered Clarence his commission, whatever it might be. If he would please not bother me because I hadn't arrived at the conclusion that he was a solicitor for some alcoholic institute. One evening I had gone out after dinner to take on a couple of double headers and stayed a little later than usual. When I came home, Clarence was sitting on the Davenport with Bill W. I do not recollect the specific conversation that went on. But I believe I didn't challenge Bill to tell me something about AA. I do recall one other thing. I wanted to know that this was this was worked so many wonders and hanging over the mantle was a picture of the of Gethesman and Bill pointed to it and said, There it is, which didn't make sense to me. There was also some conversation about Dr. Bob, and I must have said that I would go down to Akron with Bill in the morning. Next morning, my wife came into my room and awakened me and said, "That man is downstairs. He said he would. He said you'd go to Akron." I said, "Did I say that?" She said, "Well, he will be here if you didn't say so." And being a big shot man, I would go. Well, if I said so, then I'll go. That's about the spirit in which I went to Akron. Bill bought me a drink or two on the way, and Dorothy S. came with us, and the three of us went over to City Hospital. We drove my car and left it down in the, in the yard. Bill left me at the elevator and said, Your room is so-and-so. And I couldn't see him again for six months. The intern came along with a glass full of bleached lightning. What in the world is that? That put me away for about 15 hours. I went into the hospital in 1930, April 1939. All right, I'm just I've never heard of bleached lightning. That must be. What was it, Clorox? Man. That sounds pretty heavy. Yeah, the Clarence they're talking about is Clarence, I believe his name is Clarence Snyder. And I believe he's the, uh, he's one of them standing over that, in that picture that you see in the eight clubhouses a lot. And the, the guy that, I believe the guy that's in the picture is either Clarence or is a guy that by the name of Bill, and it's not Bill W. So there's another Bill in there, so I'll involved somewhere. So I'm sure have the uh, the folks that have a little bit more have done a little bit more studying than I've done on that particular matter. I'll make know the name. I'm just I'm just glad it's up there because it's, it's nice to see that. That's what goes on. Kind of gives you a little reminder. My experience in the hospital considered to be terrific because Dr. Bob told me very quickly that medicine would have very little to do with it. Outside of trying to restore my appetite for food, I had had no hospitalization up to that this point because I would not call doctors when I was getting over a bad one. I would use barbiturates. In fact, the last three years of my drinking was a routine of barbiturates in the morning. 
so that I could stop shaking enough to shave. And then alcohol beginning about 4.30 or 5 o'clock. With a struggle not to drink at noon or during the day. Because I had the idea that if I took one drink, I would smell as though I had had a pint. I used to go out of work too. I used, I used to drink before I went to work. You know how many people know that about me, but living with my parents, living with my, living with my parents, they had a downtown or a, a downstairs bar, and I usually had a little concussion I mixed up before I went in. Because that's what working at Walmart. So, anyways, when I worked at Walmart, I should say. Dr. Bob did not lay out the whole program. He startled me by informing me that he was an alcoholic, that he had found a way which so far enabled him to live without him taking a drink. And the main idea was to find a way how not to take that first drink. He told me that there were some other fellows that had tried this with success. I cared to see any of them. He'd have them come in to see me. I believe every member of the Akron group did come to see me, which impressed me terrifically. Not so much because of the stories they told, but because they would take time to come and talk to me without even knowing who I was. I did not know there was such a thing as group activity until I left the hospital. I left on a Wednesday afternoon. I had dinner in Akron. Then went to a house where I was encountered my first meeting. I had attended several of these meetings before I discovered that all those who were there were not alcoholics. That is, it was sort of a mixed bunch of Oxford groupers who were interested in the alcoholic problem and of alcohol alcoholics themselves. My reaction to those meetings was good. In fact, I never lost my faith since I had been prepared by some conversations toward the end of my sojourn in the hospital with Dr. Bob. Conversations pretty much along spinal, on spiritual lines. There was one experience with Doc which made a terrific impression upon me. The afternoon that I was to leave the hospital, he came in to see me and asked me if I were willing to attempt to follow the program. I told him that I had no other intention. That was at the end of eight days in which I had no liquor. He then pulled up his chair with one knee, with one of his knees touching time, I'm sorry, touching mine, and said, will you pray with me for your success? And he then said a beautiful prayer. That was an experience that I have never forgotten. And many times in my own work in AA newcomers, I feel kind of guilty because I don't I haven't done the same thing. One of the things that came up repeatedly in the stories they told me was that once they had accepted the program, they never had a desire to drink. That was skeptically received by me when I first heard it, but after some 28 or 30 fellows had come to see me, pretty nearly all of them had said, the same thing. I began to believe it. In my own experience, I was so jubilant and finding myself sober that I had so many things to catch up on that a month went by before the thought even occurred to me. I had a genuine release 
right from the start. I've never had a desire to take a drink. I'm going to make some comments on this thing, too. When we, uh, we encounter somebody new in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, we got it so screwed up right now that we just allow the newcomer to come in and we just give them a big walk and let them go home. You know, you're supposed to take sit down with them and, and make sure they're an alcoholic and go through and talk to them about report. They get anywhere near a meeting. And then once they, then you're supposed to take them through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't want to, uh, you don't want to tell, you don't want to tell them about your great successes in life. But you want to, you want to tell them about your, your activities of drunk, your experiences with being drunk. And, um, and make sure that you know, they understand the fact that you are not a therapist. It's not, that's one of the biggest errors I've seen in AA. These guys, people and ladies who want to sponsor, play therapist to the, to the person, the newcomer. And they don't want to do a squat about it. They feel like, you know, all they just get off liquor. And that's the problem that I see. I mean, I've seen people be taking control of somebody's money before and spending it for them. I mean, I, I blame that on the ego of the groups and the ego of the individual. They're taking, taking, uh, taking advantage of a newcomer. That's what that's all about. Doc, Joe, I'm gonna go on here. And that's why when they say you take them through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that it's, it's guaranteed that once you take them through that they're not going to drink. And that's what people don't understand. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully some people out there will get, get an idea on that and realize what's going on before you kill somebody. Doc worked on the idea that this was an illness. But Doc was pretty frank with me. He found that I had enough faith in Almighty to be fairly frank. Pointed out to me that probably it was more of a moral or spiritual illness than it was a physical one. We went to Akron for about six weeks and we did a lot of visiting among the people in Akron. Right at the time, there were at that time in the neighborhood of 12 or 13 Cleveland members who had been sober anywhere from a year and a half to a couple of months. They had all been taken to Akron and it was finally decided to undertake the organization of a Cleveland group and for the end of May 1939, the first meeting was held in Cleveland in my house. At that meeting, there were a number of Akron people and all the Cleveland people. Professionally, after I was sober for a month or so, I realized that I should screw myself to dissolve the partnership I was in because I felt that I would never regain the respect of my partners. No matter how long I was sober and that I would be at a disadvantage I still had enough practice to earn a good living if I would only work. So I resolved that in January of 1940, I would launch a patent law firm of my own. 
me stop again. It's doing something too. There's Founders Day coming up in June. We look it up too if you're interested in it because I believe it's June twelfth. And if you can go to that, go to it. Because I have a whole new appreciation for for the program of alcoholics anonymous when you go to this Founders Day and you have a whole new, and you have a lot of gratitude for what what the folks have done. And I, I hear the house is just like protected. It's been that way for a long, long time. I don't always like touch any of the knickknacks or move them around or anything like that. But that, uh, that is amazing. <coughs> Whoops. So that, that's amazing to the fact that Like Bill Dobby and Dr. Bob have done for us, and uh, how they've, uh, how the folks have taken, taken, uh, taken to keeping that uh, that pristine. Shortly after I came to this conclusion, I was importuned by another well-known Latin firm, by another well-known patent firm to help them out on some real trial work because their trial man had had a heart attack and had been forbidden to go into the courtroom. Somewhere in one of the conversations I mentioned that I was contemplating forming a new firm. On hearing that, these people induced me to make the move immediately and join them as a senior partner, which I did. I found in the fall of 1939 that I was not mentally impaired so far as trial work was concerned, and thereafter took up where I had left off when I was about 45 years old. My physical health was badly shaken, but I began to pick up. In fact, after six months of living on food instead of on whiskey, I gained about 30 pounds. I realized that there wasn't anything I could say to myself in a more favorable light with my children than it was going to be a matter of time. For I also understood the intolerance of young people towards deficiencies in their elders. I believe, though, that it helped my family tremendously to have AA meetings every week in my own home. My oldest child sometimes sat in on the meetings. I had accepted Catholicism somewhat as an inheritance. My education had been pretty much, my education had been pretty much pagan science. I resolved that if I was going to continue with the Catholic Church, I was going to know the roots of the doctrine, since those roots had caused some decent confusion. So I enrolled at the university for night courses in religion, and I, put, and I pursued those courses for a year. And summing up, I can say the AA has made me, I hope, a real Catholic. Um, you know, it's, it's funny because the Catholic part that I have heard about, it kind of, it kind of loses its importance with us, but you know, we must respect religion. We must, you know, and respect the people that are religious, you know, especially in our program. 
because that's just the way they connect with their higher power. And, um, you know, sometimes it causes problems for the folks that are in uh, Catholicism because we think we can pick up and drink again. So anyways, I just want to say too that, you know, if nobody else has told you they love you today, I do. And I say that with the power of love. Thank you.